Now, I did mention a bit earlier on the air that uh, there are reports coming in that Al-Bashir has actually left the country. Uh, do you know anything about this? Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. Um, we've also heard those same reports, and we've seen stories on Twitter about that, but at the moment we haven't heard any confirmation, and we're acting on the assumption that he is, that he is still in South Africa. Let's take a step backwards. Um, Al-Bashir even surprised the African Union with his arrival. How quickly did you have to move when you discovered uh, the Sudanese president was coming here? And take us through the steps you went. Sure. We we had heard that he'd been invited. And so in on the 21st of May, we sent a letter to various government departments just reminding them of their obligations under international and domestic law that should he arrive in South Africa, they were obliged to arrest him. And we referred to comments that they had made in the past, specifically in 2009 when President Bashir was due to attend Jacob Zuma's inauguration, that should he, if, that if he were to arrive in South Africa, they would arrest him. So that letter went out in May, and we were watching, monitoring the situation since then. So late last week, we got information that he would be traveling, and as soon as we heard that he was on a plane, or we had information that he was on a plane, we, we started acting quite specifically. We drafted papers in the, in the application and got in, enlisted the help of our legal representatives. We only filed the papers as soon as we had information that he was, in fact, in the country and that he hadn't been arrested. So we waited until... He had been. He was in the country, and we gave the, the authorities the opportunity to arrest him before we filed any papers before the court. And uh, let's uh, then take another step backwards. Uh, talk about the charges that Al Bashir faces at the International Criminal Court, and I guess why it's important that uh, South Africa observe their obligations in this regard. There are three main categories of crimes that are crimes before the International Criminal Court, and they are crimes that are regarded as the most serious under international law. And those include war crimes, crimes against humanity, and then genocide. And President Bashir is, is wanted for all of those crimes. Initially, when the ICC issued an arrest warrant, they issued arrest, they, the charges related only to war crimes and crimes against humanity. But a year later, they issued an arrest warrant for genocide. And so I think it, it is important to recognize that the crimes that he is suspected of committing are universally accepted as beyond the pale, particularly genocide. I think that we can all acknowledge that the issue of, around genocide is something that internationally countries need to take, take seriously and hold perpetrators of, of those sorts of crimes to account. In terms of the effort by the government, because now the African Union, of course, uh, has a policy um, which says that uh, it's not going to work with the ICC, yet South Africa yeah. is a signatory. Would it have been, I'm sort of, you know, the scenarios here have been better for the South African government to then renege on its um, agreement with the Roman statute before this uh, happened. What would have happened then? I think that that's a political decision that the South African government had to take. And I think that the issues around where their obligations lie, whether to the ICC or to the South African legislation which has domesticated the Rome Statute into South African law or to the African Union is now going to be determined by the court. We've got indication that the state respondents will raise that in, in court tomorrow, that they will argue that the existence of the African Union policy to not arrest Bashir, as well as the 
status of the African Union summit in South Africa is something that negates the, the South African authorities' obligation to arrest him. And I think that now we, ha- we have to wait for the court to rule on, on where that is. But I think that it, it was a decision that the South African government took, and it was a political decision rather than a legal decision. There, I understand you also had to go back to court because uh, there was uh, certain reluctance on the part of some officials to recognize uh, the first order of the court that you had. Uh, does this indicate a level of, I, I, I suppose, um, trying to evade the issue? So we, ha- we obtained the first interim order at, a, at around 12 o'clock this afternoon, and the court then adjourned until 3 to allow the state respondents to to prepare. When they came back, Judge Fabricius indicated that he felt that the court order that he'd issued in the middle of the day wasn't quite clear enough and that he wanted to issue a, a slightly clearer one. Because at that stage then, that the state respondents indicated that they, w- they wanted to seek a further postponement. And we then intimated that we had no problem with the postponement as long as we had complete assurance that the respondents would not um, allow President Bashir to leave. And that was the state respondents didn't have any any problems with the order that President Bashir not be allowed to leave, but they did have some unhappiness around the conditions that we sought to have imposed. And those conditions included in, instructing the Department of Home Affairs to notify every um, port of entry and exit into, into the country of the order and to provide us with the contact details of the person responsible at each of those ports. And it was just that issue that the state had had problems with arguing that it was just not practical for them to do it. But the judge wishes did not accept their arguments and did impose the order with, the set, with all the conditions that we had requested. Caroline, we'll have to wait and see how the court rules tomorrow. But if you f- hear that the al-Bashir has actually left the country, will you then take action against the SA government in this regard? Would. We had intimated that one of the reasons why we wanted to have the contact details of the responsible people at each port of entry and exit was that we could then follow up with contempt of court proceedings if we were to discover that President Bashir had left through that, that border post. And so we certainly would follow up and, and bring contempt procedures against all the respondents, but particularly against the official that was responsible for that border post. Thank you very much, Caroline. We'll leave it there and move on to our next guest, who's Professor Charles Villavicencio, who's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation. He's also the co-editor of a book called The African Renaissance and the Afro-Arab Spring, A Season of Rebirth. We'll discuss that particular book and the issues in it in greater detail. But of course, Professor, I do have to ask you about this particular incident today and the legal challenge that has been lodged against it. Has the South African government slipped up here, do you think? Well, Caroline uh, James has just spoken uh, with more knowledge of the situation than what I have, but I certainly think it's a huge embarrassment for the South African government, and it's part of the crisis that Africa faces at the moment concerning international law and related matters. Um, Yes, well, uh, we're going to have to see how this uh, plays out. I suppose we have to ask uh, this matter, uh, this question, could we have avoided this? Could uh, South Africa have sent uh, behind-the-scenes messages and said, uh, don't put us in the spot here? Uh, 
Look, my understanding is, and I'm not a great authority on this, but mm. my understanding is when we go back to the football, soccer World Cup, for example, that he was persuaded not to come. Yes. Now, the fact that he has come, I think, suggests a certain uh, uh, behavior on his part, uh, which is a little unexpected. He's defiant arrival in the country, and South Africa's somewhat blazon willingness to allow him into the country constitutes a further development in the crisis between African countries, the African Union, South Africa, and the International Criminal Court. There's no question. Uh, the ante has been upped. Yes. Well, interestingly enough, of course, uh, al-Bashir is uh, the Sudanese president, uh, and uh, they have had massive problems, of course, with the situation in defiance, Darfur power changes, and, of course, the way um, the general, as he was then, in fact, uh, came to power. Which brings us on to the African Renaissance and the Afro-Arab Spring. Tell us a little bit about the reason for putting this uh, book together, first of all. Well, uh, thank you very much. Look, I think the situation concerning President al-Bashir is a further indication of the restlessness that there is on the African continent at the moment, which I would want to argue this restlessness, that is, which includes al-Bashir but goes well beyond that, is perhaps the biggest threat to African stability since the end of colonialism in the 1950s and 60s. And so what we do in this book with some very leading scholars is we take a look at the situation, arguing that the current African restlessness is a manifestation uh, of that uh, anxiety, that anger, that restlessness that we have seen in the African Renaissance, which equals a struggle for democracy on the African continent and in the African Arab Spring. So what we do is we take an in-depth look at this restlessness and ask ourselves what is going on in the north, in the Afro-Arab Spring, and in the south, and in other parts of Africa in the quest for democracy and equality. And the South African example, I suppose, is something that can be drawn on as an example, yes, of course, we have certain day-to-day um, conflicts, uh, even today, within our, our political setup, but we still have a very strong, we, we've transitioned very strongly. So I presume the lessons that we learnt are something that the rest of Africa can draw on and perhaps are not doing as yet? Well, I, look, I think you're absolutely right there, and this is what we suggest in the book, by the way, is that there are many lessons that come from the South African settlement that the rest of Africa ought to learn. And let me say that my experience is that there are Africa, there are countries throughout who are seeking to learn from our soft and creative transition. But at the same time, we in South Africa ought to take cognizance of what is happening in the rest of Africa and in the Afro-Arab Spring. And we ought to realize that where people are feeling excluded and alienated for financial reasons, for cultural reasons, for religious reasons, sooner or later, those people are going to fight back. Mm. And I think what we're seeing at the moment 
in the rise of uh, radical groups in Africa, jihadist groups in Africa, is all part of this fight back against Western dominance in religion, culture, uh, economics, etc., in the world order. Mm. Well, I wanted to bring you on to the jihadists, and uh, I suppose the blurring of the lines, you know, behind some of the amazing sort of liberation fights, let's call them, that took place, you know, in places like Libya, where a man, you know, who ruled with an iron fist like Gaddafi, um, you know, was overthrown. And ultimately, that was a magnificent start or potentially a new start for a country like Libya. But isn't that the danger of, you know, these uh, organizations who ultimately have the bigger picture of taking on the West uh, using Africa as a playground to actually, you know, perpetuate that fight against, you know, the Western myth, so to speak. Yes, I think those are the dangers, and uh, you um, would obviously agree with me that no liberation process is ever a smooth process that moves in one direction. There are ups and downs. And so what we look do in this book is we look at four case studies, South Africa, Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya. Hmm. And when one looks at those, one says, yes, for all our problems, we're making some progress. We are struggling with issues concerning al-Bashir and others. Uh, Tunisia is making fairly good progress. Egypt's in serious trouble. Yeah, and of course, I mean, uh, you know, the whole thing of Morsi at, uh, you know, oh, from one oh. minute, um, you know, something of a liberated now being uh, hunted yeah. and, and, yeah. and Egypt... You know, we have a chapter in the book called The Pharaoh Returns, mm. and we're referring to Mr. Sisi, uh, the president, El Sisi, should I say, who yeah. uh, got rid of uh, Mr. Morsi. But one looks at Libya, an absolute disaster, absolute disaster. One sees no possibility of a reasonable peace in the immediate future. And let me just interject here, if I may, and say the African Union, for all its frailties, warned that that was going to happen and resisted the kind of activities that came from the West in the removal of Gaddafi. Now, nobody wants to say a word in behalf of Gaddafi or of al-Bashir, for that matter, but transition is a difficult, a slow, and an agonizing process. We're going to have to leave it there with the Professor Charles Villavicencio, Senior Research Fellow in the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation, also co-editor of the African Renaissance and the Afro-Arab Spring, A Season of Rebirth. His co-editors, Eric Doxtada and Ibrahim Musa. There's articles by a number of learned authorities, and the chapter that the professor we've just spoken to uh, deals with is Understanding a Flawed Miracle, the History, Dynamics, and Continental Implication of South Africa's Transition.